Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, Week 12. We're going to be talking today about our reading, which from the Daily Bible this week was pages 354 through 383, or the dates in the Daily Bible of March 19 through the 25th. Uh, we read through this week the book of Judges and Ruth, and I have entitled this week, When Everybody Does As They See Fit. You know, last week, we were so excited. It was finally time to enter the land and take possession of God's promises. And in Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45, it kind of gave a rosy picture about all that God had done for the Israelites when they conquered the land. And, and it said there that, so the Lord had given uh, the land that he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Wow, that's like a huge wow. But this week, reality set in. The picture wasn't quite that rosy. So you might be asking, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that the writer of Joshua lied, um, that they weren't telling the truth? Well, no, because other verses in Joshua actually told us about the failure of the various tribes to possess all of their land and to push out all of the inhabitants, the pagan inhabitants. So the book of Joshua is very uh, honest. What's happening here in this verse, I think, is they were just writing in the writing style of the time. That's the way all the conquering kings from Egypt all the way up to Mesopotamia, that's the way they reported on the outcomes of their battles. And so they were just writing uh, in the writing style of the context. But this week we saw that the people of Israel, the tribes, they had moved into their allotments, but they were surrounded by enemies. And then we see that those enemies, because they were pagan, the pagan lifestyles and the false worship seeped into the camp of Israel and sin abound. And it was a very, very, very sad story. I have to say, I found it very depressing after reading through the entire book of Genesis, uh, Judges in one week. It was very depressing. The only highlight was we also got to read the beautiful book of Ruth. So I want to just make a few comments about the period of the judges. I'm going to end our time today with Ruth, but first let's wade through some of the difficult issues that we're confronted with this week. Uh, first, let me say 
that the period of the judges may have lasted as much as 400 years, uh, maybe 300 years. It's a little hard to really grasp the entire chronology of the period of the judges, but it was a long time. And so the writer of the book of Judges picked the main stories of the time. But when you're reading it, keep in mind that these are stories that um, do not depict the whole time and all the people in that time. 300 years is a lot. We've only read a handful of stories from that time. So while the writer of Judges is telling you about the battles, about the sin, about the apostasy, as they're making the case for the need of a king, the book of Ruth gives us a little bit more of the other side of the story, the story about real people who are good people, just seeking to survive, but to be um, righteous. And um, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. So I'm so glad that we have it and that we're not just relying on the book of Judges to understand that time period. Now, what is a judge? Who is a judge? Um, you know, the word judge actually uh, meant a military leader. Uh, at this time, the tribes have moved in. They've taken their various territories. They're spread out. They don't have a centralized government with a centralized leader. But what would happen is that in times in history, God would raise up a leader to bring justice for them, which meant to protect them from foreign oppressors. So in other words, they were military leaders. They were able to call up the armies to go to war. That was really the function of what is called a judge in English. Now, some of the judges were also prophets, and some were even priests. Um, but they were not kings, and they were not a government. They didn't have a centralized government. Uh, we even read that, like Deborah, she was a judge, she was a prophet, and she was a judicial judge in that she actually went on a circuit and advised the people on judicial matters uh, amongst them and resolved conflict. So not all the judges did that, but they were leaders that could muster up uh, some of the armies to confront these oppressors. Now, our whole story today is summed up from Judges chapter 2, the introduction to the book, and then the very last verse of the book. If that's all you read, you would understand the story. So I'm going to read to you from Judges 2, uh, picking out different verses up through uh, chapter 3, verse 6. So uh, starting with verse 10. Now, it's speaking here about the generation of Joshua and the leaders that had taken the land. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord, knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the Baals being um, the false gods. 
Uh, skipping down to verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders and plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. Verse 19, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Verse 20, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. Then chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. So the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Then skipping down to the very last verse of the entire book of Judges 21-25, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. So to summarize what we've read uh, this week and what this uh, set of verses just explain uh, to us that there were repeated cycles going on throughout the whole period of the judges. And it was a cycle of sin. The people would fall into apostasy and idolatry and very sinful behavior. So then God would allow their enemies to oppress them. And the oppression at the time was a very, very brutal oppression. Remember, uh, this was not the 21st century. It was brutal. And so the people would then in desperation come back to the Lord and call out in repentance and repent for following the false gods. So then God would raise up a judge to bring deliverance. Now remember, deliverance came in a military defeat of their enemies. And so he would raise up judges, and we, we read the story of, of Devorah, De, Deborah, of Gideon, and of Samson. And uh, Deborah was a prophetess who led Israel to defeat the king Jabin of Hatzor. And um, Gideon was just an ordinary farmer from a very uh, simple background, but God used him in an extraordinary way. And Samson was a, a womanizer, very weak man, very tempestuous man. And yet God used him. Uh, he was a judge for 20 years. And so these 
judges, because they would bring military strength and protect the people from the enemy that was oppressing them, then there was peace. And Israel would have a period of peace. And then they would fall right back into worshiping the other gods. And this cycle would begin again. And that's why it is such a sad story. We wish that the people would have learned their lesson, right, and, and stayed with God. But Judges tells us a very, very, um, um, what can I say? I mean, it's very detailed and not a good picture. And that, I want to say, is still one of the reasons why we can trust in the Bible and its honesty. These stories were not whitewashed. These stories were not later removed by an editor that really didn't want the people of Israel to look so bad. No, they were left here. And so we read these stories about moral and spiritual depravity and idolatry and even corrupt priests, corrupt Levites, priests, um, we read about division and, and civil war, and the lesson is clear that when the people abandoned God's ways, life broke down and disintegrated at all levels. That is the lesson of Judges. Now, I'm not going to retell every story that you read uh, this week. Some of them I'd rather not tell and just uh, skip over, but I want to draw out some lessons and some key points for us in the stories that we read. First, I want to uh, mention, you know, was it last week or the week before, I talked about the, uh, the depiction of God in the uh, Old Testament, that he led his people into war and that he led them to actually wipe out these pagan peoples. And I explained why that is. And if you missed that uh, episode, I recommend that you go back and watch it. Um, I believe it's episode number seven. And um, today I want to add one more point to that that I didn't take the time to cover. And that is how the Israelites viewed their God. So, you know, in the time in which they lived, as I said, it was a dog-eat-dog world. It was a kill-or-be-killed world. It was brutal, okay? Very brutal. So these people, the Israelites, saw their God just the way the pagans around them saw their God, and that is that their God was going to protect them and would bring victory over their enemy. Now, you and I can sit here in the 21st century and we can look down on the Israelites for thinking that God would lead them into victory and that God would direct them to kill others and to wipe out the pagan peoples around them. And like I said, I gave a full explanation on that last week, so I'm not going to go there uh, this week, but I, I want to say they saw their God exactly the way society then saw God. And it was within the context of a very, very brutal society. And today we have the luxury of sitting here in the 21st century. I'm sitting in the safety of the United States. 
I don't live in that world. And so my view and my relationship with God is slightly different. But does that mean that they were wrong? Does that mean that I'm wrong? And the answer is no. I believe God met his people where they were and within their context, just like today. God meets us where we are and within our context. Now, I also want to talk about some of the archaeological evidence that backs these stories. You know, I'm always wanting to share with you not just the story behind the stories, but also how accurate they are once we get to know the archaeology of the time and some of the finds and some of the the things going on in the context. And we have that in these stories this week. You know, first of all, the story of Deborah, the judge who was also a prophet, and uh, her people were being harassed and oppressed by the Canaanites and uh, by Jabin, the king of Hatsor. And so the head of his army, Sisera, or Sisera, however you want to pronounce it, was killed by Yael, who took the tent peg and ran it through his temple. You read that story, uh, actually, at the end of last week, beginning of this week. Well, do you know that in the um, Amarna letters, which are findings of thousands of writings of the time um, found in Egypt, they uh, talked about the main cities of Canaan, and it was Gezer and Hatzor and Shechem. And we read uh, this week about two of them, Shechem and Hatzor. And here they have found the archaeological remains of Hatzor in Israel. And it was destroyed and it was burned, just like we read about in this story. And in the ruins, they found an artifact with the name on it in the palace of Jabin. Now, we can't say 100% sure that this Jabin is the Jabin of the Bible and that the fire that destroyed Hatzor is the fire of the Bible. But hey, what are the odds that it's not? I think it probably is, and I think it's a pretty cool find. Um, We read the story about Gideon and his victory over the Midianites. We all know the story of Gideon because he actually was told to only take 300 men with him, and yet they brought about this great victory because, of course, it wasn't up to them. It was up to God who was with them. And um, Gideon is a good judge. He's a prophet, and he brings strong leadership to the people and a very, very good season of their history under Gideon. But it says, no, long, as soon as he died, the people went after the, the Baals again, and, um, and then his son comes. And his son, which is one of 70 sons, it says, He kills all 70 (coughs) in order to uh, become the leader. And he gets the city of Shechem to follow him and to proclaim him as leader and to help him in this. Now, like I said, Shechem is one of the three main cities of the region of the time. And here we have this story. And in the Amarna letters, it describes Shechem as having lords and a mayor. 
So they had this governing body that in the Bible it says Gideon went to. Isn't that cool? So uh, little hints here and there of just how accurate these stories are. Um, and then we had the story about Micah and the idols in his home and the Danites who came and stole his idols and took them up to the north of the country where they then took over a city called Laish and turned it into Dan. Now, I told you about this story before I alluded to it, that the tribe of Dan was given a territory that was down next to the Philistines. It was on the coastal area, and they could not defeat the Philistines. They could not take their territory. And the other tribes did not come to their defense and help them in it. So they were kind of stuck. And here in this story, it says they went looking for other territory. And they stumbled upon Micah and his home and this Levite priest who obviously is uh, corrupt. He's He's got a shrine here with uh, idols in it. And they end up taking these up to the north of the city of Laish, which they turn into Dan. In one of our very first episodes, I told you how that up in the north of Israel in the city of Dan, which during the time of Abraham was called Laish, and that there in that city, we have found a mud brick gate to the ancient city of Laish. This gate is 4,000 years old, and the archaeologists have called it Abraham's Gate because it's so likely that Abraham actually entered that gate in the story that we read in, I think, Genesis uh, 14 or 15. And when he's pursuing the, one, the people that had abducted Lot, it says he goes up to the city of Laish, he reorganizes, and then he goes on north past Damascus. And so this is Laish, and we know Dan took it, and we know that they renamed it. We know this from archaeology. And then we had the story of Samson, very troubled man, um, womanizer, uh, carnal, uh, but he had made this, his mother had made this um, Nazarite vow to God that his hair would not be cut. And uh, the other parts of a Nazarite vow are that he would not uh, partake of anything from the grape, which of course includes wine, uh, but it's anything from grapes. And then secondly, he wouldn't touch a dead corpse. And thirdly, he would not cut his hair. And this was this Nazarite vow then actually produced in his life great strength. And um, the setting of this story is, once again, the Philistines. Well, we know that the Philistines were in the area along the coast during this period. We know this from other writings from uh, Egypt. The Philistines were a seafaring people, and they had actually fought in Egypt against uh, Pharaoh Ramses III, I think was his name, and they had been kicked out of Egypt, but Egypt allowed them to settle the coast here along the Canaanite area. The Philistines were very strong, fierce people, and they had 
they weren't just there, they were in a much larger area uh, in Mesopotamia. And so they were a very formidable enemy to any of the Israelites in the area. And that's why we keep hearing about these Philistines. We know from archaeology they were there. And then their main god was Dagon. And Dagon was a major god throughout Mesopotamia at the time. And um, according to the book of Judges, uh, he brings Dagon's temple down by pushing over the pillar. Now, it may sound like a made-up story, but actually, in archaeology, they have discovered there in that area two temples that had like an, uh, a semi-open uh, foyer area that had two pillars there, and they were wooden pillars on stone pedestals. And so these two pillars held up a roof over this open entranceway or open courtyard area. And Samson knew that. And I think Samson knew that he could maybe dislodge the wood pillar from off its stone pedestal. And that's what he did and brought it down. Well, um, you know, my final point about Samson that I want to make is that his hair isn't what gave him strength. It was the Lord. And so in that story, it says that um, although his hair was cut, when he got up, um, he did not know that the Lord had left him. It was the Lord that brought him the strength. Um, one last thing I want to talk about is the Ark of the Covenant, because in our stories thus far, we saw in the wilderness how God told them to make this Ark, and this Ark had a mercy seat over the top where the presence of God was known to reside. And in the wilderness, the, uh, the Israelites were led by either a pillar of fire um, or a cloud. But um, it was the Ark of the Covenant that was known as housing the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And so when they entered the land, if you'll remember, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant first and stepped into the Jordan River and the water stopped and the people were able to cross. And after that, they then took the Ark um, up to uh, where they did a rededication um, of the covenant at Gilgal. But then we read next about the ark in uh, Joshua 18, where, um, sorry, it's right before that. I don't know the exact chapter, but in Joshua, where um, Joshua takes everybody to Shechem, which is in between, he puts half of them on Mount Gerizim and half of them on Mount Ebal, and they stand on either side of the Ark of the Covenant. So we read about the Ark of the Covenant there at Shechem um, in that scripture. But in Joshua, um, we later see, and we read in our story this week, that the Ark was at Bethel for a while because it was managed or kept by Aaron's grandson, Phineas, And I may not be pronouncing it right, but Phineas 
was the son of Aaron's third son, because his first two sons were, were killed. They died. His next son uh, had a son named Phineas, and Phineas was keeping the Ark of the Covenant. But then in Joshua 18, we see the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle are in Shiloh. And um, later it is being kept by uh, Eli, who is another grandson of Aaron by Aaron's fourth and last son. So uh, we have the Ark kind of moving around during this time. But it ends up at Shiloh for something like 360 uh, years, they think. And um, Shiloh becomes a real center for uh, worship, and that's where Eli is, that we start our reading next week, where we read the story about Eli and Samuel. Uh, that Ark of the Covenant is there in Shiloh. So I just wanted to give you that little rundown about the Ark um, because we don't, we don't hear a lot about it. It doesn't tell us when it actually moves from Bethel to Shiloh, um, but we do know that it ends up there in time for our reading next week. So uh, next week, we're going to do another Going Deeper interview with an archaeologist uh, Dr. Scott Stripling, and he is going to talk to us about Shiloh and the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle there. So now uh, I'm going way too long. I still want to talk really quickly about the beautiful book of Ruth and leave you with that beautiful, beautiful story. So in Ruth 1.1, it opens up and it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Of course, this is uh, Elimelech, and his wife is Naomi, and their two sons, and their two sons marry local daughters who are from pagan families. They're from families that worship other gods. And that's the setting for the story of Ruth. It is the period of the judges, but it gives us a little bit of a, a different uh, view of life then in that there was a peaceful migration because of famine uh, from Bethlehem to Moab. There wasn't fighting. Um, and there was a, a an intermarriage here that was respectful of the God of Yahweh because uh, Naomi still worshiped the God of Yahweh, but yet her sons had married uh, these uh, other daughters. So we know the story. Her husband Elimelech dies. The two sons die. Uh, she tells her two daughters-in-law, go back to your families and to your gods. And her daughter-in-law Ruth refuses. And her daughter-in-law Ruth says these beautiful words that we have in chapter 1, verses 16 through about 18. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Beautiful story of this pagan girl who has adopted the God of Israel 
and become a part of the people of Israel through her loyalty uh, to her mother-in-law. And then we have the, the beautiful story goes on of Boaz, who is a, a relative of Naomi. And we understand this right of the um, Leverite marriage and the kinsman redeemer, that when a woman has been widowed, that someone in the family is to marry her in order to carry on the family line. And also it keeps the property within the family and I should say within the tribe. So it's very important that the tribe of Benjamin keep the lands of the tribe of Benjamin as owned by someone in the tribe of Benjamin. And because the, the land was seen as owned by God, they didn't actually own land. So, uh, but they did have the right to uh, possess the land and these property rights that passed and that and that's why it was important to keep it in the family and in the tribe and um, so we know the story if you didn't have time to read it please read it and let the beauty of it just soak in how that she Ruth goes to Boaz and it says that she pulls the corner of his garment over her there on the the threshing floor uh, at night don't read too much into that. It wasn't a sexual gesture. Um, I actually noticed that it used the word kanaf, which was the same word for the corner of the garment where the tassels were to be um, tied as a reminder of the covenants of God. And so it could be that she was taking this hem of his garment and covering her um, as a physical depiction of his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer according to the covenants. It might have been like a, a reminder of him according to the commandments uh, what he needed to do and that she was asking of him uh, to do that. I don't know. Um, I just noticed that as I was doing the reading. But the story of Ruth wraps up with this. It demonstrates God's inclusiveness all along of anyone who wanted to join themselves to his people. And that's why we previously had the story of Rahab, how that she ends up in the family lineage uh, of the Messiah. And here we have Ruth does the same. Ruth and Boaz uh, have a son uh, who then has a son, who then has a son who is King David. So Ruth ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. And God is demonstrating there his grace and his mercy and that anyone could be included in the family. And um, so with that, I'm going to conclude today. I want to remind you uh, to come back when we release the Going Deeper um, interview about the about Shiloh and the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle. And um, I hope you enjoy the reading next week. We're going to move past the period of the judges. Thank goodness. What a relief. Uh, the cycle begins to come to an end. And um, but we have a whole nother transition to talk about next week. So I'll see you back then. And until then, God bless.